I'm going to ask you to take your Bibles or turn on your Bibles, open your Bibles, whatever you do to your Bibles these days, and find Matthew chapter 5. Matthew, the first book in the New Testament, and then chapter 5. And I want to start, usually uh, I don't start by just reading the Scripture passage, but I want to do that today. And I want to start in verse 17 of Matthew chapter 5. These are some verses that are probably going to be somewhat familiar to most of you, but it doesn't make them any easier to listen to, because these are some tough ones. Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 17, Jesus is speaking here, and he's giving an extended sermon, really, that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And he says this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven, but whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Skip down, please, to verse 27. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Skip down to verse 31. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, That everyone who divorces his wife except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. The reason that we we skipped some of that and covered so much ground is not because what we skipped is unimportant. In, In a past series, I spent actually an entire message dealing with each one of these four sections, and we will spend some time on each of them this morning explaining what Jesus means here. But I really, in this case, I really wanted you to see this whole passage together as a whole because there is a theme that is running through all of these verses that applies to all of our lives, every part of our lives, not just the parts of our lives that Jesus is dealing with here, but to every part. We have been talking about something called the kingdom of God for the last few weeks, and we have defined the kingdom of God, and here it comes again. The kingdom of God is God's rule in God's people in God's place. God's rule over God's people in God's place. And we've said that this sermon by Jesus here, Matthew chapter 5 through chapter 7, what we call the Sermon on the Mount, is kind of like the constitution of the kingdom of God. It is a great place to see what it looks like when God's rule actually becomes active in the lives of his people, meaning us. We are his people if we're trusting in Jesus Christ. And the section here that I've just read is a summary of what you might call kingdom righteousness. Kingdom righteousness. What does it mean to be righteous? What does it mean to be good? 
perhaps what does it mean to be pure as kingdom people, as we live out our lives for King Jesus? Now, for those of you who have been to high school, raise your hands. This will give you a chance to get them up in the air. Okay. Yeah, I know the rest of you still went to high school. So most of you, all of you, you probably remember that when you were in high school, um, after a few weeks of the semester, around the time that the first test was going to happen, there were certain kids that would always ask the same questions. And you kind of knew who they were, but they would raise their hands, and they would always say something like, um, is this going to be on the test? Right? Or, um, let's see, what percentage of our grade is this test going to be? Are you going to drop the lowest quiz grade this semester? Do we get credit for participation? Do we get credit for attendance? That's actually more important in college when you can, I mean, never, never mind, I shouldn't tell you that. Um, but these questions, these questions have to do with not the content of the course, not becoming more educated, not how do I learn the material, but with grades, right? Just with how am I going to get a good grade? How am I going to, I care more about my grades than I do. Even, this even happened when, when I was in seminary, I noticed. Um, we were in seminary we're all supposed to be so spiritual there and we don't care about earthly things like our GPA right but we got grades they would grade us and and I was there were still people that asked those questions about the percentage on the grade and all that now I was too ashamed to be one of those people but I, I have to admit that at some level I was glad those questions were being asked because you know what down deep inside I still kind of cared a little bit about my grades even there but going back to high school we, back then, we had to take final exams in every class. There was no way out of it. You always had a final exam at the end of the year. And in our high school, there was a formula, and that final exam was always worth one-ninth of your annual year-long grade. And so if you knew what you had gotten, what the number was you had gotten for a grade in the, in the four quarters of the year leading up to the final, you could do the math, and you could figure out exactly what you needed to get on that final exam in order to get an A or a B or a C or whatever. And so you'd, you'd get the numbers out, and you'd say, okay, I'm going to figure this out. Okay, in order to get a B in this class, I need to get a 53 on the final. Okay, I can do that. Let's see. In order to get an A, I need to get oh, 117. <laughs> Guess which final I'm not studying for, right? And you probably can relate to that. But you have to admit, that is a rather cynical way to think about your education, right? It's not about increasing my knowledge or becoming a more well-rounded person or developing my character. It's just about making a grade. It's about meeting the requirements. It's about, and here, here's what we now say, and here's where I, I kind of want to go. It's about doing the minimum, right? Doing the minimum, skating by, doing all that I have to do and maybe no more in order to, to kind of get through. And what was happening in, in Jesus' day largely under the influence of the scribes and the Pharisees, was that people were beginning to treat God's law, the law of Moses from the Old Testament, like this. These commandments had been reduced basically to a series of formulas that you had to follow, and if you reached a certain level, a certain level of obedience or compliance with the law of Moses, if you got a certain grade, then you were in, or you were maybe more likely to be in when it came to the kingdom of heaven, so you could kind of sneak over the bar and sneak your way in to the kingdom. Well, Jesus is, 
is putting a stop to that kind of thinking here in no uncertain terms. First in verses 17 to 20, which kind of sums everything up, he, he really sets his listeners up and he basically says this, look, I'm about to say some things to you which are very different sounding. It's going to sound a lot different than what you've heard your teachers saying about the law. But when you hear me say these things, you need to know that I am not, I am not abolishing or invalidating the Old Testament law of Moses, but I am, but I am about to show you what that law really means. I'm about to, to fill it in for you. Because these commandments from the law of Moses have had their heart ripped out of them. But I'm about to put the heart back in and show you what they really mean. Because my kingdom people, Jesus is going to say, my kingdom people are never to be satisfied to obey God's law merely on the outside, on the externals to look good not to skate by, not to get some sort of righteousness C-. minus. My people are going to obey God in their hearts, not just in their actions. And if you think about who God is, that only makes sense. Because where does God look when He looks at people? Throughout the Bible, God consistently looks not on the outside of a person, but inside. Man looks at the outward appearance, it says in Samuel, but the Lord looks upon the heart. What proceeds out of the mouth comes from your heart. In the Old Testament, it says to the people, circumcise not just your flesh, but your hearts. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart. So, let, let's, let's walk through this passage now, kind of piece by piece, if we dare, and look at some examples of what it means to obey God from the heart. And not just do the minimum. And, and as we do this, uh, we need to note that Jesus takes this heart stuff pretty seriously. In fact, he uses words like hell and, and judgment. We came across those as we were reading them. And he suggests some kind of radical steps that might be taken in order to make sure that our hearts are in the right place. And, and Jesus' point is not to say that slander is equal to murder or that lust is equal to adultery. So that you could say, well, since I've already done the first one, I might as well go ahead and do the second one because there's no difference. No. What he's saying is that these sins of the heart are just as worthy of condemnation and judgment and eternal separation from God as the more external sins to which they are related. So first Jesus talks about murder. And he says that while you might think that you can get away with doing the minimum, you know, get that spiritual C- minus by not killing anybody, there are ways that we commit murder, not just with our hands, but in our minds and with our mouths. Now, he talks about being angry with your brother. Well, nobody here is immune to the emotion of anger, right? We all get that. When somebody hurts us, when somebody insults us, when somebody cheats us, when somebody belittles us, when somebody talks about us behind our back, or when so, especially when somebody does something mean or hurtful to somebody that we love, we get angry, and that's, God put that in us. That is a human emotion that we all have. But the kind of anger that rises in your heart that leads you to start thinking certain thoughts fantasizing about ways that you might damage or humiliate or destroy somebody. You may never act on those thoughts, but as you tinker with them in your mind, Jesus says you're playing with fire. And sometimes these emotions also come out in vicious words, right? You fool, idiot, moron. 
And you might not say them to the person. You might say them to yourself about the person. You might say them to another person about the person. But what you're doing when we use words and expressions like that, we are dehumanizing people who are made in the image of God. We are acting as if they're not human beings. And and by the way, that's what you need to do before you murder somebody. By the way, racism is also in this family of sins. Because when you hate or when you judge or when you dismiss someone, defining them not by our common humanity but by some external trait like race or sex or nationality or something even like looks or intelligence, when we judge people on the basis of those things, we're making them less than human in our minds. The Apostle James, Jesus' brother, who was clearly very familiar with his teachings, especially the Sermon on the Mount. If you read the book of James, the Sermon on the Mount is kind of all over that thing. But in his book, he says, we bless God, and then we curse people who are made in the image of God. That shouldn't be. At one point, James actually accuses his readers, which is his church congregation, of murdering each other. Now, I don't think James's people are going around killing each other a whole lot, so what does he mean by that? I think he's talking about this. Have you gotten to the point with somebody Now, you haven't killed the person, all right? So, congratulations. But the things that are going on in your head and maybe the things that you mumble to yourself whenever you see that person are the same hateful and dehumanizing and dismissive thoughts that lead people eventually to kill one another. Jesus says you're breaking the sixth commandment in your heart even if these bitter imaginings never translate themselves into your actions. And Jesus gives us some practical advice here, actually. He says, look, as this starts to fester in your heart, what you need to do is not let that happen, but get with the person. Reconcile yourself to your brother. Make sure you talk about it, even though it's hard. It's hard to tell somebody whatever it might be that you have to tell them. It's a difficult conversation, but it's one that you need to have because otherwise things are going to fester even more and, and your soul's going to get even more corrupt because those, those thoughts continue to drill down in there. Jesus says you can nip it in the bud but it probably takes a difficult conversation. Okay, Jesus tackles adultery next, and he says that while we may be able to do the minimum by not physically sleeping with someone who's not our spouse, we need to recognize that lust, which happens in the heart and in the mind, which in the Hebrew mind are just about almost the same thing, lust is also a form of adultery. And this one is probably way more of a challenge in some ways today than it was back then, because, of course, of the technology and the access that we have to all sorts of things that are prompting us and prompting lust to happen in us. Um, how many times have you been looking at a news article online? You know, maybe you're looking at Yahoo, or, or you're on Facebook, or you're reading a sports article, or, or, or something like that, and you get down to the bottom of the article, and there's an advertisement. And the advertisement says something like, mortgage rates in North Carolina are at an all-time low. But the picture on the advertisement is of a really attractive woman in shorts and a tank top. And you think, what in the world does that have to do with the mortgage rates in North Carolina? And the answer is, nothing. In fact, the woman is probably from Kansas or Wisconsin. But the people who design the advertisements are not dummies. They know how to catch your eye, and they know that the sex is the number one strategy. Because the sexual desires that God gave us, which are good and wholesome and part of his design for the human race in the context of a committed marriage between a man and a woman, are nevertheless very strong and very susceptible to being twisted in all the wrong directions. They're volatile. And this one is a battle that every one of us has to fight. 
And as Wes was telling us earlier, our kids and our grandkids need to fight this battle too. Nobody's immune to it. And Jesus, we didn't read these verses, but after this he starts talking about cutting off body parts in order to win the battle. He's not telling us to actually do this. But he is clearly saying that radical steps might be needed to take in, in order to tame our sexual lust. And he gives us another practical hint when he does these things. He's telling us that it's very wise. It is very wise to put up some fences in this area of life in order to minimize the temptation. Fences when it comes to how we spend time alone with members of the opposite sex. Fences when it comes to what we do online, what, where, where we click, and, and, and where we are physically when we're online, things like that. But you know what? Even those fences are not foolproof, are they? Even in cultures where they wrap their women up in robes and hoods whenever they go outside, there is still a major problem in those places with sexual sin. Why? Because lust happens here. It happens in our hearts, it happens in our minds, it happens in our imagination. But you might say, well, why is it wrong if I don't act on it? I mean, can't I have a little fun in my mind? Why is Jesus being so harsh here? Well, it's because he knows that lust, even if it's not ultimately acted on, is still dehumanizing and destructive to the human soul. The Apostle Peter actually says that outright. He says to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against your soul. And if your lust perhaps involves a person in your life that you know you can't have, but you're starting to play around in your mind with the idea of having her or him, you are damaging not only your marriage or maybe your future relationship, but but now you are viewing another precious person created in God's image as an object to be possessed and not a person to be loved, as someone to be used. And you don't think of it that way right now, but that's what you're doing. And if your lust instead revolves perhaps around some explicit images or videos or, or, or even explicit words that you may be finding somewhere probably on the internet, You may not know personally the person that you're fantasizing about, but you have still transformed him or her into a product to be consumed. And it's not just the product, it's also the consumer that experiences damage and is dehumanized in this process. People who say pornography is harmless or even helpful are neglecting the fact that it destroys our ability to achieve true, loving, sexual intimacy with another person by detaching our sexual impulses from our relationships and our emotions. It shatters the soul and it deadens the spirit. Parents, advertisement number two, Friday, 6.30, here. Wes and Courtney are offering that seminar on how to help your kids and your grandkids and your families fight this battle. It's a battle they cannot avoid. And so I hope a lot of you will come. In verse 31, Jesus moves to talking about divorce. Now, in Jesus' day when it came to divorce, the, the movement on this issue was in a pretty permissive direction. Men who were having a difficult time with their wives for whatever reason could pretty much just escape the relationship and they could send their wives away. And all they had to do was do the minimum. And here's what the minimum, by the way, women women really couldn't do this back then. The men had a lot more power. The women were pretty helpless. But a man could get rid of his wife as long as he did the minimum, which in this case meant giving her a piece of paper, a certificate, that officially released her to be married to somebody else. And Jesus here is saying, look, if you think that a piece of paper takes away either the sanctity of your marriage commitment or the pain of a divorce, then you have a serious heart problem because this is a very low view of marriage. Now, 
My generation, okay, Generation X. I love my generation. They did a lot of things right. But one of the things that happened to us was that we were really damaged by the divorce rate of our parents, which was much higher than, than previous generations. And as a result, we developed a kind of cynical attitude toward marriage, and, and that has carried through to the succeeding generations where many of our young people today, they see the emotional carnage of our divorced, ravaged culture, and they tend to want to give up on any kind of high ideals for the marriage relationship. But notice that Jesus doesn't go there. He retains a very high view of marriage as a permanent binding commitment to an ongoing love relationship where two people mysteriously become one flesh. It's that powerful. And he knew this was not easy. He knew marriage wasn't easy. In fact, one time he was talking to his disciples in another part of the Gospels about divorce and marriage, and the disciples said to him, well, if that's what it's like, then how can anybody even get married? And Jesus didn't argue with them a whole lot. But he never wavered on God's design for marriage. And our young people and, our, and people that are still facing decisions about marriages need to see that marriage is a beautiful blessing and not just a burden that ties you down because that's how some are starting to think about it. And while a good marriage, listen, a good marriage never falls into our laps. It doesn't happen that way. It can still be forged. It can still be built up over time as a couple goes through all the seasons of life together, joys and disappointments, blessings and pain, offenses and forgiveness, a deepening of love in all sorts of new dimensions for one another as each season goes by, and that over the years it is possible to build something lasting and beautiful, the closest of all human relationships. Now, I know this is a very painful teaching for some people here. And here's why. Because you can hide your lustful thoughts. You can hide your, your murderous thoughts. But when you're divorced or separated, everybody knows it, right? Everybody knows you've been divorced and you don't need any more shame piled on. And you need to know, yes, there is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is great hope and potentially great blessing in Christ for divorced people. But whether you are in a lasting healthy, happy marriage right now, or whether you have been through the pain of a broken or failed marriage, I hope that we can continue to uphold Jesus' ideal and that our young people, as they see us live this out, even when it's tough, as they see this in our lives and as they hear what we have to say, they can recover that ideal and they can appreciate the value of that permanent, committed, and exclusive relationship especially for God's kingdom people, that we will not give up on our marriages just because the world offers us a piece of paper that lets us do it. Now, we don't have a lot of time to spend on this last section here about oath-taking, but I think we all realize that we live in a world where words have become very cheap, right? That's why when you go to the grocery store, you look at the products, everything has to be extra crispy and, and super absorbent with ultra-grease-fighting power, right? Because the language has to be like that. It's why when famous people today issue apologies on Twitter for their offensive you know, words and actions, they have to grovel for like three paragraphs about why they did it and what they did, and almost nobody ends up forgiving or believing them anyway. So why do they bother? And it's also why we, we often find ourselves using words ourselves like, really, and I mean it, and I swear, and I promise, I am like totally, I'm totally so totally telling you the truth right now. 
What if we didn't have to do that? That's what Jesus is saying. What if in the midst of a world where everything we read and everything that we hear is automatically suspect, what if God's kingdom people were to have hearts that actually love the truth enough to speak it plainly and kindly and courageously? And so we wouldn't need to swear or promise or overstate something in order to make people believe us. Okay. I'm going to change gears now because that was a lot of intense, convicting stuff in those verses, right? And so far it's been do this, don't do this, do this, don't do this. And we need to get past that right now. But I want to tell you something. That's what the Sermon on the Mount is like. I've heard one pastor describe it as an arrow aimed at your heart. It is hard stuff. It's hard stuff. And you know what? I I do want you to come back next week, but this was the easy part. Next week is the hard part. Um, But but what are we to do with these words of Jesus? He is clearly calling us to obey them, but but they're hard. Does he give us any help at all in doing this? And maybe more importantly, does he give us any hope when we mess up, when we disobey, when we fail? I mean, how do you change your heart? You ever thought about that? How do you change your own heart? What can possibly move us or enable us to change on the inside, not just on the outside? I mean, it might be easy enough to change our our outsides, to change our behaviors or to change our words or whatever for a period of time at least, but how do we change our hearts? How do we learn to love what Jesus loves and and not be satisfied to just skate by with a C- minus on the externals? How do we do that? Well, here are some, I want to give you some help. So here are some questions that you might be led to ask, and then we'll answer them, okay? First question, question number one. Isn't it true that one purpose of the Sermon on the Mount is to show us our own sin and drive us to trust in Jesus and His righteousness instead of our own? And the answer to that is yes, that's true. One of the things Jesus is doing here is He's showing us that even when we feel like we may be getting it right, even when we look like we might be getting it on the outside, that that doesn't mean we're righteous on the inside. It reminds us of a guy that came up to Jesus one time and said, how may I inherit eternal life? good teacher. Jesus said, why do you call me good? Nobody's good but God. He was already hinting at him. The guy said, well, Jesus said, you know, obey the commandments. He was talking about Moses' commandments. And the guy said, I've done it ever since I was a kid. I've always obeyed Moses' commandments. I wonder if he'd been hanging out with the Pharisees and the scribes and he knew he had a C-. minus. Because Jesus looked at his heart and realized there was a problem there. Now, it's true that no one earns his way to heaven by obeying the Sermon on the Mount, because no one can obey it completely. We are not made right with God because of our own righteousness, but because of the righteousness of Jesus, which is given to us when we trust in Him, because when He died for us on the cross, He took our sins upon Himself, and He offers us His righteousness in return. And that is the righteousness that justifies us. That is the righteousness that brings us into eternal life. That being said, Do not dismiss this sermon as impractical just because it's hard. This sermon is supposed to do much more than just drive you to your knees because this is how kingdom people live. It is. This is is what our lives should look like. This is our ethic. This is what Christ has called us to, this kind of heart righteousness. So question number two. Doesn't the Holy Spirit help us obey God in ways that we otherwise couldn't? Don't we get supernatural help from God's Spirit who lives in us? Yes. Again, yes. Those of us who trust in Jesus Christ 
receive God's Holy Spirit living inside of us. And what he's doing in there is he's building into us the very character of Jesus. And we said a few weeks ago that this sermon develops that character of Jesus. It's a picture of him. The Spirit is building Jesus into our lives. The kind of character that actually obeys these commandments. And as we yield to God's Spirit and are filled with His power, we will find ourselves not obeying just outwardly, but inwardly as well. As the Spirit changes our desires, our motivations, our attitudes, yes, our hearts can change. Because the Holy Spirit does that. So we do have hope that we will be following Jesus' words here more and more as we grow in our relationship with God. Now, third question. Pastor, you talk a lot about how important it is to look at the context of verses when you're reading them and not just look over the whole Bible, but, but to make sure that, that you look around to see. We learn a lot about the words by looking at the words around them. And as I look through the Sermon on the Mount, I don't see a whole lot about the Holy Spirit. I don't see a lot about imputed righteousness given to us that belong to Jesus. So is there any hope anywhere here in the sermon that somebody can actually obey this? What are these poor people supposed to do that are watching Jesus real time preach the sermon? Is he giving them any hope? Is there any hope nearby in these words that will help us to have some way to obey from the heart? And again, I'm going to tell you the answer is yes, although we have to go back a few verses to find it. Remember the Beatitudes, those of you who were here like four weeks ago? The be- blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who mourn. All those statements that Jesus made at the very beginning of this sermon. You might remember, and we didn't major on it a whole lot at the time, but each one of those was followed by a promise. A promise. And God's kingdom people are motivated by the promises of God. That's what moves us. In fact, Peter says, In his second letter, he says, that's how we escape the corruption of the world and partake of the divine nature, by the great and precious promises that God gives us as we believe them, as we live as if they're true, because they are. So here's the question, is there a promise anywhere in the Beatitudes that talks about this idea of obeying God from the heart and not just on the outside? I think there is. It went like this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Do you remember what the promise was? For they will see God. See God. That's a pretty good promise. What does it mean? Doesn't the Bible say that we're not, we can't see God? No one can see God? Yeah, it does say that. So what are we talking about here? Well, maybe we can't see God physically, but you know what? There, there are other ways to see God. I'm going to borrow a little bit from John Piper here because I like what he says. He identifies three ways that we can actually see God. He says this, first seeing God means being admitted to his presence, being admitted into his presence. When you go to the doctor's office, you're in the waiting room, and the nurse comes out, what does she say when it's your turn? The doctor will see you now, right? That doesn't mean he's going to look at you. Well, he will probably, but it doesn't mean he's just going to see him face to face. It means you are now admitted into his presence. You can now interact with him. To see God is to be allowed into his presence, to experience that intimacy. The Psalms talk a lot about about this, about seeing or seeking the face of God. You know, wanting to, to linger in his throne room. This is a promise, a promise for all those who are pure at that heart level. Second, seeing God means being awestruck by his glory. Being awestruck by his glory. This happened to Moses in the Old Testament. It happened to Isaiah. It happened to Ezekiel. It happened to Job. 
They didn't see God directly, but they were still overcome by His beauty and His magnificence as they experienced Him. You know what? One day in heaven, we will bathe in God's glory in heaven. Until then, we see Him indirectly, but, but even now, there are times we can be overcome by who He is and by how wonderful He is and by what He's done. Third, to see God is to be comforted by His grace. Comforted by His grace. David in the psalm says this. He says, Be gracious to me and answer me. Hide not your face from me. As our hearts become purified, we become more aware of God's grace being poured out on us. And the Bible says that's another way of seeing God. Piper concludes, So when Jesus promises the reward of seeing God, there are at least three things being implied. We'll be admitted to His presence, not just kept in the waiting room. We'll be awestruck with the direct experience of His glory, and we will be helped and comforted by His grace. But let me add one more thing, and we'll close with this. I think this is a great irony, and if you think about it, um, try to get yourself into the sandals of the people who were actually watching Jesus give this sermon in real time 2,000 years ago. Because the weird thing is, when He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God, What were those people doing right at that moment as they were looking at Jesus? They were seeing God. They were looking into the face of Jesus, so they were looking into the face of God. But were they really seeing him? Probably not. Jesus said to Philip, Philip, have I been with you so long that you have not seen the Father? Paul says that when we experience the knowledge of God's glory, we do so in the face of Christ. John says when he appears, Jesus, we will be like him, for we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. The great reward that comes to us in the future as kingdom people is that we will one day see the face of Jesus. The great reward that comes to us here in the present as we seek not just an external purity, but purity in our hearts, in our loves, in our motivations, in our desires, is that we experience a deeper and deeper intimacy with our Savior, who is also our friend, who gave Himself up for us, who died for us, that we might be with Him, and that we might be like Him. And so as we go to the Lord's table here in a minute or so, will you draw near to Jesus? Will you draw near to Him? Will you do that this week? Will you seek His face? That intimate relationship with Him, being in His presence, that is what happens as you listen to these words and pursue that righteousness that is a kingdom righteousness because it's a righteousness in your heart.